Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. As we go through Hebrews, it is quite an adventure so far. Looking forward to continuing it. Let's go. Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 15, and it starts by saying, For this reason, so we have to look back. What was there, and what is the reason for verse 15 and forward? Well, it is because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice that you don't have to keep making sacrifices. Jesus did it once and for all. The blood of goats and bulls is no longer required. Jesus took care of that by offering himself. As our high priest, that was the greatest gift that anybody could give. And so, for this reason, Christ is a mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from sins, committed under the first covenant. Now, here's where theologians get really complicated, and I understand completely why they do, and I understand their points that they make. If you're not a theologian, and if this is all kind of new to you, I'll give you a super short version, all right? And that is that the blood of ghouls, ghouls, if you can find one and it has blood, it's probably not a ghoul. Uh, bulls and goats, and then you roll, the, you know, you, you've gotten your sins forgiven? No, they say, it was just rolled forward until the next time of sacrifice, the next year, whatever high holy day. And all these sins were rolled forward so that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all of those sins, wiping those out, as well as for our sins. And so that's why it says, that um, he died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Now, is this accurate? Well, I have to say pretty firmly, it could be. (laughs) That's, uh, I understand their point, and there are certainly verses that make it look like that. Um, And I don't see any real problem with people saying this, and so I, I don't fight on it at all. It is just one of those things that you would like to have been in the crowd that was hearing Hebrews read out for the first time, or sitting beside whoever wrote it and say, can you tell me more about that one? A couple of verses would, would help be helpful here for us about 2,000 years in the future. But in which case, they would laugh at you and have their people show you the door. You know, you, there's the door, get out, because you very, very silly people, uh, of course, we're living in the last days. There won't be 2,000 more years, which is what every generation has believed since the first one. Um, So I wouldn't go out and spend a lot of money on last day books and produce, all right? In the case of a will, okay, good, we have an allegory. Um, we We have an example, this is really good. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. All right, let me tell you what the argument's about and where he's going to head with this because it really helps to know ahead of time 
where he's headed, right? Here we are. The people he was writing to were really struggling whether Jesus was the son of God. And if he was, was he adequate? Was he the right anointed one? Because he didn't see what they were expecting. They were, they were expecting a king riding through with an army, uh, routing the Romans and routing, by the way, yes, the Jews that didn't agree with whatever Jewish group they're in, and then establishing them as a kingdom as in the days of David. That's what they were looking for. Now, what they got was a whole lot more, but they couldn't see it. Very much like we can't. Uh, whenever God says, you know, you be faithful, you do the hard things, you take the persecution, because things are gonna be wonderful later, and God is king and he loves you. And sometimes you don't feel loved, and sometimes you don't see God being king. It looks like somebody else is running the planet. They had that struggle too. But that, in my opinion, their struggle was 10 times harder. And yes, I pulled 10 right out of the ether. It could have been 100 times or three. Because for hundreds of years, they have been getting ready for a thing they thought was coming. And that's not what happened. So they're trying to figure out, okay, now what do we do? And here we are, some of us uh, are believers in Christ. Some of us are on the bubble. And some of us are pretty much running back to the synagogue and trying to put this all behind us. You're gonna have to explain to us how a guy dying is good news. Now the resurrection, yes, we all know that. We have to start the dying part. If you don't know this, uh, when missionaries first went into the Nordic countries like Scandinavia, Scandinavia of course would be Norway, Sweden, and Finland, but also it'd be Denmark, um, you, those northern climes, they ran into the Vikings and the Vikings had no interest at all in a god that could be killed by men. They thought that that was a pretty sissy god and they laughed and they would torture the priest and that was, a, in fact, the favorite indoor and outdoor sport of the Vikings for quite some time was to land and torture people who were Christians and laugh about it saying, well, you picked a God that anybody could nail to a tree. You should have picked a better one. Because if you don't know the story and you don't understand and, and you don't have witnesses of the resurrection still walking about, it does seem like that's not really a great God. And so the writer of Hebrews has to explain the death did have to happen because covenant was going to change. Remember we talked about covenant the last week here. And I believe we talked about covenant the last uh, Monday in March in the Monday morning messages. So you can go back and look at that. But to, for there to be a change in covenant, he says, that's, that's a will. What's a will? You know what a will is. But why do we call it a will? Because it's my will. What is my will? We don't usually use that term. When someone passes, we'll say, do you know what their wishes were about funerals and the like? But we have a will and we want our will to be done after we die. Well, there's a will, there's a covenant, but there has to be a death. My children are in my will, but they can't back up a U-Haul and start pulling stuff out right now because I'm not dead yet. It'll happen, patience, everybody, patience. 
So, it never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. See, huh? See, there's a, there's a callback here. Watch for it. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Some of the other versions would add of sins. There is no forgiveness of blood, uh, forgiveness of sins without blood. Um, and that was just added uh, because the, those phrase that that's not really in the originals that we well, we don't have originals. The oldest manuscripts we have. So what's going on here? To us, it seems completely unsanitary and kind of icky to be mixing all this together and then you know flinging the branches about and sprinkling things. But it is super important to them because you need ritual. People need ritual. You know, um, it sounds like I'm going to be running down a rabbit trail here, but I'm really not. Let's say that you've been a smoker all your life, and now you've determined that you, you're really going to stop. Whether it's the first time or 20th time, you're going to make a go of it this time. And very proud of you, because smoking is incredibly addictive and incredibly hard to stop. And so you'll never hear me uh, making fun of people who smoke, who've tried to stop, or any of that, because it's tough. I'm sure. I've never smoked a bit in my life. Doesn't make me more holy than a two-pack-a-day smoker. Just saying, I don't really know the powerful feelings. I just know what people tell me and what we see in research. So that's it. Let's say then that you have, um, whether you've used the patch or you're chewing the gum or you're just going cold turkey, whatever it is, is that enough? No. You generally need two other things. You need community. You need a group of people to hold you accountable. That's why people go to AA meetings. That's why people go to rehab. You, you need the skills, but you also, in rehab, they'll also teach you the second thing you need, a new ritual. Think about it. A smoker um, may be a first thing in the morning smoker. You know, step outside, look at the day becoming bright, smoke that cigarette, go in, brush your, you know, go in and eat your breakfast, there might be a post-breakfast cigarette. Then you brush your teeth. During the day, your hand goes to your pocket or your hand goes to your, your bag and you, you have this whole ritual and you get away from your desk and you walk on down. And even before the, the isolation of smokers, you know, I've flown across the Atlantic many times where one plane has three or four smoking and non-smoking sections, just every three rows, it changes as if the the smoke wouldn't magically come over to the non-smokers. Um, in fact, there was one flight back to Scotland as, uh, I was on once where you couldn't see the screen for the movie. Uh, kids, it used to be that the screen was a single screen and the front of each section of the plane, not in the back of the headrest. You couldn't see it well because of the smoke haze. Yeah, those are the days, weren't they? Well, even then, People would gather, and after they've eaten, they've got their coffee, what do they do? Pull out the cigarettes at the restaurant, start going. There's a ritual. So now you wake up in the morning, what are you gonna do? Well, I'm just not gonna smoke. You know, that's not gonna work. You're gonna need another ritual. Maybe you can, you can holy this thing up. You can have five minutes of prayer. 
You can have five minutes of reading a psalm out loud. Cannot be in, internally read. Uh, there are really powerful psychological reasons for that when trying to do a ritual. Uh, it could be that you write out a, a, a passage about your life and your observance. Five minutes, you've got to do it. What do you do after breakfast? If that's when you had a cigarette, you need a ritual. And you need a ritual. I, I, when I was a boy, you could see some grown men with lifesavers, um, you know, little polo mints, as we call them back in Britain, um, in, in their pocket or, or gum. And back when I was a boy, by the way, things like that were considered for children. But when you saw a grown men have it in the shirt pocket, you knew that they were trying to stop smoking because their hand would go there so often for the cigarette, there needed to be something there. And it was a new ritual to unwrap the mint or unwrap the gum, right? You need a ritual. And so Moses takes all of this and he does this rather elaborate, frankly, because there's blood and there's a lot of other stuff done. And you mix it all together and you do this ritual, you're gonna remember that. It's rather like baptism. You're gonna remember that. I know people who um, have baptized when the whole place was, was frozen over, the pond, and the people took out axes and cut a hole and the minister, and I don't, I've never done that. I've seen it done, but I guarantee you that they're never gonna forget that one. It's why we do weddings. You know, weddings are insanely out of control. We all, I think we should all agree with that and just refuse to participate in that sort of nonsense anymore. But it really just can't be where you look at somebody and say, uh, do you wanna be married? And you both say yes three times while holding hands and then you're married. There needs to be a bit more community and ritual. And Moses was doing both to show that by blood, sacrifice, this was all being uh, sanctified, set apart. That's a church word. It means set apart for something special. So in the law of Moses, every sin, if it was to be forgiven, there was a blood cost. And in fact, the altar, and, and if you've ever seen models of this, people have done remarkable jobs doing models of this. A whole lot of people have. And you can find those on YouTube and Google very, very easily. I'm aware YouTube and Google are the same corporation, but you know what I mean. Um, but I've never seen a really realistic altar. And the reason is this, God wouldn't let him clean it. And so for generations and generations and centuries, you would have animal fat burned there, hair, skin, blood burned there. The altar would have been a horrific scene and a horrific smell. And that was to remind the people that sin is not a neutral thing. It's not a little thing. It is an offense against the God who made us and in whose image we were made. And so that's why blood had to be there. That's why it had to cost. Uh, if you've ever been around people, especially in nomadic cultures and third world countries, and they have sheep or they have cattle, whatever they have, to sacrifice the best one, which was required by, by the old law. You couldn't take you know, the, the lame one over here that keeps wandering into the creek. You had to take the best one. That was a big cost. They were to, it was to show people, it is serious. Sin is serious stuff. And it takes blood to deal with this. And now Jesus comes and what does he do? Does he get the best cow ever made by God? No, he gives himself. 
And by his death, it ushers in his will, his covenant, which means God's will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of these heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Okay, Hebrews is going to do this by level a lot. And then in chapter 12, it's gonna do something really fascinating with it. So while Moses is, is cleansing the earthly copies of metaphysical reality, heaven is doing it for real. Now, is this news to the Jews? No, they were pretty much in track here. They, they could get this because they, again, they were people of the book. God, they were God's chosen people. Uh, and so they, they knew the story enough to where they're tracking with the writer of Hebrews. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. In other words, this is better, earth one, that's um, very, very necessary, but it is substandard when you take a look at heaven. So Christ didn't go into the temple. Christ didn't go into the tabernacle. Christ went into the real ones in heaven. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. What's that all about? He died, there's the blood, the sacrifice. Then he entered into the Holy of Holies. He went back home to be with God in heaven. But while he's there, he's not retired. He continually intercedes for us. Let's talk about the word intercede or mediator. The, um, the model I was told is growing up, and by the way, I'm no knock on the people who told me this because they were told by somebody who was told by somebody, was that God was fierce in anger and that Jesus as a mediator, what he does is he stands between us and God, basically going, no, dad, dad, let me, let me explain. It's really hard down there. And No, Hebrews makes it extremely plain that God the Father has exactly the same attitude toward us as Jesus does, as Jesus did toward the thrown away, the beggars, the, uh, the thrown away woman in Samaria, the, the uh, sex worker woman uh, that crashes a Pharisee's house party, the, uh, the Roman centurion even, the powerful and rich, but we, those who we consider our enemy, he loves them too, all of this, and that's what God is like. So what does it mean to be a mediator? In Semitic countries, uh, and some of them to this very day, you don't have time for trials. And so whenever there is a hurt, uh, a, a slight, a financial dispute, you gather the community and one of the community is chosen by both parties to stand and mediate. In the old days, if you could not solve it by the end of the day, the mediator would have to pay the difference uh, or he had to somehow uh, please the aggrieved party. Jesus is the one mediator, Paul said, between God and man. He makes sure that peace on earth, goodwill toward men was not just a baby announcement, but it's reality. He loves us, he speaks for us, and the Father loves us, and the Father listens. Moving on, verse 25, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. 
Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's a really, there's no qualifier on that. To do away with the really good people's sins. To do away with the sins of the people that go to this brand name church. No, to do away with sin. You might wanna start listening to the February and March sermons. Um, they're up there, same channel you're watching this. And like and subscribe. I think, every, I think we're supposed to say that every time. Just as a man is, is destined to die once and after that to face the judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Wow. So this is beautiful. So we no longer do the, the goats and the bulls and the cows and we don't, we don't kill those for sacrifices anymore. Jesus made the sacrifice and then we just give ourselves to him. And that is the sacrifice. But it's kind of hard to call it one when you get so much in return. You know, in the meantime, in, in this middle ground that we, we live in between the promise and the reality, yeah, it can be very, very rough. I wouldn't, I wouldn't poo-poo that idea at all. Some of you are in great pain emotionally, physically, family disruption, job um, disruption, financial crashes. We get that. We get that. Your team at Our Safe Harbor going through the same thing. Whatever you're going through, somebody in our team is going through. And we've, we co-feel with you. We empathize and sympathize. But we believe the promise that the sins have been taken care of. And Christ is coming back. He's coming back to take us. Now, whether that's to an off-site heaven or a redeemed earth, not gonna fight about that. We'll talk about that one day, but not today. Well, I wanna keep going. Verse one of chapter 10, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Just what we were talking about. Not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they have not stopped being offered? In other words, if offering sacrifices really changed the inside of people, you know, the outside is being obedient, but the inside, make, they want to be obedient and they're enjoying being obedient. If the sacrifices hasn't pulled that off yet, he says, why do you think you should keep doing it? Well, of course, the real quick answer here is we should keep doing it because Moses said to do it. So Hebrews is making sure they understand that Moses himself and Jeremiah and other hints throughout the Old Testament made it clear that another covenant was coming, that the Messiah was coming. They may not have recognized the Messiah when he came, but he did come. And the covenant now is a different covenant. We don't do that anymore. It didn't get us where we wanted to go. And we should, we should remember that. You know, the, there's an old saw that you, you hear in so many different forms, but basically that the uh, definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and, and expecting different results. That's, it's a pretty shallow and exception riddled definition, but it is still useful at some level. 
And he's just saying, listen, it didn't make you better, did it? Um, well, there's a story I want to tell, but I don't have permission. Moving forward. Uh, for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Something greater has to be sacrificed. And you, we can look around and say, but we don't have anything greater. We are herdsmen, we are shepherds, we are farmers, whatever we are. We have a very limited amount of stuff of any value and most of it's walking around on four legs. And you want us to give the best one and every year to give the best one. Well, that's, that's really struggle for us. And you're telling us, nope, that won't do it. What do we do? And of course the good news is, and it is good news, it's gospel, that Jesus did it for us. By the way, this is not another rabbit trail, but I wanna to speak to our Catholic friends. Um, whenever you have a service, our Roman Catholic friends, it's called a mass. And it is a, it's almost an acting out in highly symbolic form of the, of the death and resurrection of Christ. And in fact, one of the reasons that you can see a difference between a cross on a wall in a Catholic church and in a Protestant church. In a Protestant church, it's just a cross. In a Catholic church, it has Christ still on it. It's called a crucifix. Well, I just want my Roman Catholic friends to know this is one of the things that really bothers your Protestant neighbor. They don't get this because they read in Hebrews, Jesus died once for all, he does not have to give himself again. And they feel like that's what you're acting out as if he has to do it every service. I know that's not what you really think and that's not what your theologians are going for. Just be aware that your Protestant neighbors may not understand it and that I know you believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the third day. That's, it's not like you're leaving him on the cross with the crucifix. You want people to be reminded of the cost of their salvation. Protestants don't normally get that. So if they seem irritated with you on any of these, understand, cut them some slack. And Protestants, cut your Catholic friends slack. We are believers. We all need grace. None of us are going to nail this down perfectly. Not a one. So we should be as kind to others as we want God to be with us and as patient with others as we want God to be with us. So here comes uh, another quote. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Paul here actually cuts and pastes from a couple of different sources, Jeremiah, the Psalms. He does that a lot. And Paul handles the Old Testament in ways that we, um, I said Paul, but hang on. Paul handled the Old Testament in ways that somewhat bother us. Paul did not write Hebrews, but the writer of Hebrews uses scripture like Paul in that they're taking, we, to us we would say it's out of context, but to them they don't see it that way. That's um, Our rules about how to read and interpret should not be shoved back into their time. This is their book, their culture, and they know how they are allowed to use it. So 
that's how that's done. Here's the fascinating thing here to me. There are, even though it's not a quotation from Isaiah, I see Isaiah here. I, of course, I see Jeremiah in the Psalms because they're, they're actually quoted here. But sacrifice and offering you did not desire. If God did not desire these sacrifices, why in the world did he order them? Well, it's because it wasn't about what he wanted. It was about what we needed. We needed to be confronted by the seriousness and the cost of sin. And you would think by now we would have gotten it, but come on, we, we have it. We still let stores sell cold alcohol, you know, ready to consume when you hit the car. We, um, bars have parking lots. And you would think after a while we would learn, wait a minute, there seems to be an issue with this, but we don't. We don't, we worship the self rather than paying attention to reality. Here's, here's a, a fact. God didn't want to have to put us through any of this, but we needed it. We are people of uh, very short attention spans and we tend to forget the promises we made. He needs to make sure we remember who we are, who he is, and why we wanna draw close to him. So he says, here I am, and that's, that's very reminiscent of Isaiah. Here am I, send me. Uh, it is written about me in a scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. We uh, record this in the shadow of Nashville, Tennessee. There is a seamless connection between you know, Franklin, Brentwood, Nolansville, Nashville. It all runs together on this southern edge. And Nashville has a soccer team, Nashville Soccer Club, NSC. And my grands love it, therefore I love it. And, you know, we, we're going to be going to games coming up here pretty soon. But one thing that fascinated me, you know, they all have walkout music, but not like a baseball player where everybody has a tune but they would do a big light show and there's some fireworks and then uh, there's some songs and then, then you know, out walks the team. It's a very dramatic moment and a very sweet moment because every time they have a game, each team member is holding the hand of a young person, young boy or young girl, um, and they're wearing the same type uniform, you know, and they get to go out and uh, they hold hands all the way through the national anthem and then they're sit back in. Very, very sweet. But what really hit me was the last one of these that I saw, they were playing Johnny Cash singing an old, old song that we really can't trace the roots of. God's gonna cut you down. And it is an amazing song. If you've never heard it, go find it on YouTube and then go buy it. Um, what, a dollar $1.25, go buy it, get it, get it in your phone. God's going to cut you down. Now, as a man who believes in almost universalism, if not, and who believes that the grace of God is amazing, you might think I wouldn't like that song, but I do just because of its power and the rawness of its, of its words. And in one of the verse, verses, it talks about, you know, I've been wet with the midnight dew. You know, I met the guy from Galilee. I was baptized and he said, John, go do my will. And I mean, I'm getting chills right now. The way Johnny Cash sings that is like nobody else. And I think of that, Jesus stepping up like Isaiah, here am I, send me. And then hearing that echo of Johnny Cash, I've come to do your will, 
go do my will. It's amazing. Gotta stop. I look at the clock, we're over 31 minutes. Thank you for joining us. Share these with others. If you are using them in a small group or in a church setting, let us know. We'll never ask you for a penny for that. That's not about, we, it just encourages us. It makes us really happy when we hear about that. God bless you. I look forward to hitting, we're gonna start with chapter 10, verse eight next week. Cheers.